in the synagogues and studying people because he was suddenly arguing that Jesus was the Son of God. And in the end, of course, the Apostle Paul reached people that Ananias could never reach. And we've also seen fruit. One of the ways that I connected with refugee men was through playing chess. I met Nuruddin this way, an older man from Syria who had been a philosophy teacher there. We became good friends, and after a time, he became like part of our family. And my sons loved it when he cooked Syrian food for us. He also took part in a 13-week course that we offered at our church called al Masira, which means the journey. And uh, some, something uh, uh, we also, where we studied the Old Testament prophets together and set, saw what they said about the Messiah. And then we looked at, G at how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies and was the Son of God. And it turns out that the Lord had been working in Nuruddin's heart ever since he, even before he left Syria. And after the course, he was convinced that Jesus was his Lord and Savior, and he wanted to be baptized. And as he emerged from the water after the baptism, he actually even said to the whole church, Jesus is my life. And Jesus truly is Nuruddin's life. He invites Christians and uh, his Muslim friends to dinner together, and he shares his faith without fear, and he reaches people that we could never reach. So we're so, so thankful for the Lord for bringing us personally from fear to faith, and even to see fruit in the ministry in Berlin. And we're also excited about the opportunity in our next term to work as part of a Bridge Europe team, a new team that's there to continue to reach immigrants and refugees in Germany and in Europe. All right, now let's uh, praise the Lord by singing uh, hymn 206. The church has one foundation. If you would stand and we'll just uh, praise him through this hymn. <clears throat>
the inside cover of our Kindle and we will we will share our faith. What is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our responsive reading this morning comes from uh, is Psalm 19. And Psalm 19 is on uh, page uh, 378 in the Pew Bible. Uh, this psalm is to the choir master, a uh, uh, psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims handiwork. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set the the sun. Which comes out of a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. His rising is from the end of the heavens, and his circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from his feet. The law of the Lord is perfect, revealing the soul, the, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the house. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than love, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. The king's servant is heirs, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep you back. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and the innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God and our Redeemer. Amen. At this time, uh, we will. Uh, Share the uh, questions and answers uh, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. I will ask the question and uh, the congregation will respond with the answer. It's uh, in our bulletins. Question 72 What is justifying faith? Justifying faith is the saving grace brought in the heart of the sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby he. Of the sin and misery and of the disability. 
not only ascended to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receive it and rest us upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth the pardon of sin, and fully accepting and accounting of his person's righteousness in the sight of God for salvation. Question 73. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Faith that justifies the sinner in the sight of God, not because of those other graces which always accompany it, or the diverse other fruits of it, nor as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives the right and his righteousness. Good morning, saints. Good morning. And uh, like Jerry said earlier, this is a jam-packed service. We've got a lot of things going on, but that's because it's a special day. This evening, we'll be at the Common Reformation Sunday service at Second Press over in Memphis. And the gentleman that organizes that event every year is Pastor Grant, James Grant, who's going to be preaching for us today. Also, he's been a pastor ordained in the Presbyterian Church in America in this area for 20 years, and uh, with that, almost all of the pastors in the area of any kind of a reformed event look to him for leadership and guidance. He's had that kind of a great cumulative comforting effect on the entire community. So I look forward to hearing him preach on Habakkuk, and I'm sure you do also. Uh, this is the point in our service where we have confession. Now, for those of you that don't come from a liturgical background, this might be something new and different. But really, the church has been doing these kinds of things for 2,000 years, like the Apostles' Creed. I know it says Catholic in it, and we're not Roman Catholic, but we're fully Catholic. Because what Catholic means is the universal church of Christ at all times, in the past, in the present, and even in the future. All who truly believe in Christ are part of the one universal church. And churches have been confessing and, and, and stating that they believe in Christ. They're using this creed for a couple of thousand years now. So it's a common part of the liturgy of really every church service. So at this time, we're just going to have a time of silence where just between you and God, you can confess your personal and private sins to him. It's good as part of getting your mind and heart ready for worship that you do this kind of a thing. Not to me or confessing to a priest, but just confessing between you and God. also as a people of God we corporately confess our sin. Christian, do you believe that you have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that if not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ you would be lost because you have fallen short of the glory of God? We do. And I declare to you simply what the scriptures declare to you that if you have rested solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and none of your own, that by grace through faith your sins are forgiven and you are restored to your God. Amen? Amen. Now, we also have an abbreviated list of uh, prayer concerns today because we didn't have Sunday school because we had our missionary, Jeff Alaris, here with us today. 
So we'll just pray for the common needs of the congregation and also the needs of the church in the world. Lord, our God and Father, we thank you so much for this time to come together in your name. We continue to pray, Lord God, for all of those of our number that are struggling with different cancers, Lord God, that this dreaded disease, Lord God, has come upon us. And we pray for your deliverance, your healing, and the encouragement of our souls. For all of our numbers that aren't well, Lord God, or that are struggling with different sicknesses, Lord, we know that you are our true and only great physician, that you might choose to work through the hands and, and the intellect of doctors and nurses, but we know, Lord God, that you bring about our healing. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would do so, and we thank you for this blessing. We also know, Lord God, that many of us are struggling with different financial matters, and that you are the one that provides for our needs. You know what job we will have and how you will provide it, even before we know about it at all. And so we thank you for this blessing and pray that you would continue to provide for our needs. We pray, Lord God, for any that are struggling with different emotional matters, that have concerns of the heart, things here in this world, and pray that you would help us to look toward you, Lord God, as our only secure anchor for the soul and also the encouragement of our spirits. We want to pray for princes and kings and presidents and those in positions of power and authority, whatever they be, Lord God, that they would guide according to your royal law, which is to love you and love their neighbor as themselves, and that in these things there would be justice for all involved. We want to continue to pray for your church here and around the world, that the gospel would be preached promiscuously, and that by the power of your spirit, many would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We also want to pray, Lord God, for your church here in South Haven, that you would just continue to bless grace to you and just continue to encourage us to, to reach out with not only our hearts and our souls, but also with our mouths and inviting our neighbors, Lord God, to know you as King and Savior. We pray all these things praying the prayer that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now the kids wanted a uh, kids service today, so we'll go ahead and do one. Come on up, kids. Right. Yeah. So we've got a little song that we'll sing here, and then we'll ask the congregation to sing it. 
For the big people in the congregation, it's number 250. Could you just play the chorus for us, please? Let's see if we can sing this. I, I handed out the chorus for you, it's the words in the middle. Please rise as we sing the rest of the song.
Okay, so at this time, if the uh, deacons will come forward, we will receive our uh, offering. You may be Pray with me. I thank you, God, for providing us uh, with this uh, piece of belonging as we uh, bring forth our gift to you this day. Use it uh, to further your church throughout the, uh, this community, throughout the, the country, and throughout the world. We, out of our grateful heart, we give you this offering this morning. We praise you. We thank you so very much. Amen.
Fortress is our God. It's my delight to be here with you on this uh, Sunday that celebrates the Protestant Reformation. And it's a delight to have known your pastor now for a couple of years. Um, we met through uh, Kent Morlock, one of your sister churches up in uh, Rosemark. I was actually preaching for Kent last Sunday uh, since I stepped away from pastoring, as uh, Chris mentioned. I have been traveling around and helping churches, generally in the PCA, churches in transition or without pastors and preaching in different areas, and uh, uh, occasionally in the ARP. And it's such an encouragement to be here with you today and see how what God is doing uh, in your midst. So I'm delighted to join you for worship. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from two passages. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Romans chapter 1. We'll read from Romans chapter 1, and then we'll turn to the little book of Habakkuk, one of the Old Testament prophets. So Romans chapter 1, you know, Romans is one of those books that has had a tremendous influence on the history of the church, not only through someone like Martin Luther, who we'll talk about this morning, but in fact, John Wesley heard the introduction to Martin Luther's commentary being read in England and felt he was moved to faith through the introduction to this book of Romans. So I want to read Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. These two verses are considered the theme verses of the book, the theme verses of the gospel really. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you'll hold your place in Romans, because we'll come back, I do want you to turn to the book of Habakkuk, because that final expression in Romans 1.17 is a quote from the book of Habakkuk. And so in a way, this morning, we're going to see how the prophet Habakkuk helped Martin Luther to start the Protestant Reformation. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2. This is the Lord's second answer to Habakkuk in the midst of Habakkuk's prayers and, as we'll see in a moment, his complaint against the Lord. 
for what was happening in his life and in the life of his people. And so the Lord answers him in verse 2. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning asking that you will open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, to the truth of the gospel. And we pray that your word would strengthen and encourage us in the course of our life. And Lord, those who are sitting here with guilt, with the pain of their own sin, we pray this morning that the gospel would break through that guilt and release them from the bondage of sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I remember growing up in a church that relatively was a good community. I remember a lot of positive things from this church in terms of the fellowship. But in reflecting back on it in some of my experiences, one of the aspects that was missing was a clear presentation of the gospel in terms of what we call justification. I remember as a teenager wrestling with um, my own guilt and thinking at times, I will not go to heaven. I have too much in my life that I can't ask forgiveness for. And I remember going to the pastor and we were preparing for, in that church environment, a revival where the emphasis was upon getting everybody saved in the church, whether they had been saved or not. And so I go to my pastor and I say, we're preparing for this revival and what do I need to do? And he says, well, you need to confess every single sin that you've ever committed. And I'm, of course, I'm probably 18 or 19 at the time. So you imagine a cocky, obnoxious, arrogant 18, 19 year old. And I said, every single sin? That's impossible. He goes, no, it's not. That's what God does. And unless you confess every sin, you won't be forgiven. And I thought, I will never be forgiven. I will never confess every sin I, I committed. I mean, not only the ones that I've committed that I don't even remember sometimes until something pops into my mind, but how about all the ones I committed that I don't even know I did? When I offended somebody and I didn't know. And so that conversation sent me down the road of guilt and fear because I thought I will never get access to heaven. If I, I'm dependent on confessing every single sin, I will never make it. And that sparked a journey for the next year in my life of trying to figure out what the Bible said about forgiveness. And how is it that this is good news? If I can't remember every sin I've committed, or I don't confess every sin, or I don't do all the things I'm supposed to do, and I don't end up in heaven. By the grace and providence of God, I came across a minister who was uh, in the college town that I was at. 
who encouraged me to read a book. Actually, it was a book by Michael Horton called Putting Amazing Back into Grace. He said, you, you, you don't understand exactly why we sing Amazing Grace. He said, read this book. Well, as you know, somebody says, read the book, and you think, oh, I got a few other things to do. It didn't happen right away, but over a period of time, I started reading it, and Mike Horton introduced me to Martin Luther. And I found out that Martin Luther had a very similar struggle to me. And I would imagine a very similar struggle to many of you in the journey of your life or maybe exactly where you're at right now. Martin Luther, who lived in the late 1400s into 1500s, and one of the key figures that we are thankful for on this Reformation Sunday is on the front of your bulletin. Martin Luther wrestled with his guilt. He wanted to be a good monk. And he did everything that a good monk's supposed to do, but every time he sinned, he'd go to his confessor and he'd confess all his sins. And the priest that he confessed to even told him, Luther, you've just gotten obsessed with your sin. You've got to let go of some of this stuff. And Luther felt like he couldn't because he felt like sin was that serious. And as Luther was a teacher and wrestling with the Bible, he came upon that passage in Romans 1, 17, Romans 1, 16 and 17 that we read. And he talks about in his commentary and other places how this was one of the verses that broke the light of the gospel for him. And this is, this is how God works at its deepest level of the gospel is when you're confused and you're not sure about what the Bible's saying. Don't, don't give up and go somewhere else. Stay with whatever the Spirit's doing right there. And Luther wrestled with the Bible and he said he beat on the Bible. He beat on Paul because he couldn't understand why Paul said that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, gospel means what? You know, right? Good news. So Luther said, Paul says that the power of God and the righteousness of God in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is good news. But I don't see it as good news because the way he viewed the righteousness of God was that standard by which we have to measure up to. So the righteousness of God was perfection and holiness and glory. And for Luther, that was bad news because he felt like he could not measure up to that standard. So why is it that Paul talks about for in the gospel, in this good news, the righteousness of God is revealed? And Luther says he beat on Paul over and over to understand what this expression of righteousness meant. Does it mean God's holy standard by which he judges us? If that's what it means, then we're right back to my story of trying to measure up to all my individual sins. And so as the light broke through for Luther and all the things he was trying to do to make himself right before God, all of a sudden it dawned on him that the righteousness of God is what God gives us. And what I want us to do this morning, instead of looking at Romans, which we could, and see this, I want us to go back to Habakkuk. And I want us to go back to the book that Paul quotes from. And I want us to see what the book of Habakkuk is about. And I want us to understand how in the world Paul could quote from an Old Testament prophet Habakkuk in two of the most important verses in Romans that then become the verses that influence St. Augustine 
in the early part of the church, uh, as he's wrestling in his own life, Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, John Wesley later on in church history, what is it about this expression, the righteousness of God, that, that those who are righteous will live by faith? What does it mean? And what was happening with Habakkuk that helped him to see this? So in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk starts out with a complaint. In chapter 1, he begins with this prayer. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? There's destruction and violence before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now that's probably a prayer very similar to some prayers that you've prayed. God, why is it that I look around this country and it's contentious and it's difficult and we see things that don't look honoring to you? Why is it that this is what's happening? Well, Habakkuk's a prophet. He's a preacher. In 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 in. Uh, for God in, in, in God's chosen land. And Habakkuk's looking around at his fellow Hebrews, God's chosen people, and he's saying, in our country, there's violence, there's strife, the law is paralyzed. In our country, my fellow Hebrews, the, there are wicked people that surround those who are trying to be faithful. And God, what are you going to do about it? So God answers him. And the answer is not exactly what Habakkuk's looking for, which is somehow, in some ways, God, sometimes God works that way. You pray, and the answer God gives you is not exactly what you thought he should give you. Look among the nations, verse 5, and see, wonder and be astounded. And then look at what God tells Habakkuk. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. I'm about to do something that you would never believe. I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not theirs. Now, the Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. This is one of the most mighty military armies in the history of the world. Ran through the land, conquering all these lands. The Chaldeans are going to come and march on the land. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their horses are swifter than, than leopards. And he goes on, God goes on to describe how violent and fierce they are, and they laugh at everyone who tries to stop them, and they sweep in, and their own, verse 11 says, their own might, their own military might is their God. In other words, the idol they worship is their military power. And they're going to come into the land, Habakkuk, and judge the wicked people. Now, that presents a problem for Habakkuk. When the Babylonians march on the land, they're not going to pause with the faithful prophet Habakkuk and say, are you faithful to God or not, before they kill They're going to wipe everything. And Habakkuk gets this. And Habakkuk cannot understand how this is an answer to his prayer that God's about to send the Chaldeans to march on the land, the Babylonians. Let me try to put this in our own context, listening to our brother 
from Germany share stories about trying to minister to Muslims there and, and the fear that that means. We, we live in a time when that is one of the fears that we all have about what that means. To parallel God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer to our circumstance, it would go something like this. God, our country is just falling apart. People don't come to church like they used to. Our nation is not faithful to you. Please do something about this. And God answers it and says, I'm about to judge everything. And I'm going to send the Muslims and ISIS to march on the land. And they're going to judge it all. Now, that's not the answer to the prayer you wanted. But that's what God just told about. And so the Babylonians are going to come march on the land. And Habakkuk comes back in verse 12 of chapter 1 with his second prayer, which is also another complaint. And he starts off with very pious language. Oh, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? In other words, he's like, okay, I know you're the Holy God that I worship. But he's setting up to say this can't be what's going to happen. Notice the very next expression. We shall not die. This can't be what you're doing to us. This cannot be what's about to happen. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O oh Rock, have established them for reproof. But who are you to, who, you who are of pure eyes in the sea, evil, and cannot look at wrong? Now, notice what Habakkuk just said. God, you're using these wicked people, but you're not supposed to look all wrong. You're supposed to be purer than that. How does this work with your plan? And then he says, verse 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now I want to pause for just a minute and compare two verses for you. Because understanding what happens here to Habakkuk is central to understanding how the righteous live by faith. And it's central to understanding why Paul used it, okay? So, we have two verses I want to compare. It's chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 1, verse 13. Now look at chapter 1, verse 4. It was his first prayer. I, I know this is not grammar class, and, and some of you don't check out on me because we're going to define a word, okay? Let's focus in on what Habakkuk's saying. The law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Now let's pause for just a moment at verse 4 and ask who the wicked are and who the righteous are. Now in his original prayer, if I'm understanding this correctly, the prophet Habakkuk is looking at his fellow Hebrews. There's no Chaldeans, Babylonians on the scene yet, right? He's looking at his fellow people, his countrymen, and he says, the wicked surround the righteous. So who's the righteous? Well, it's Habakkuk. And it's the people that do the worship in the temple. And it's the people that are loving God and showing mercy to others. So who are the wicked? Well, it's all the other people in the country who aren't coming to, to the temple. So the wicked and the righteous in chapter 1, verse 4, is related to the Hebrew culture. So let me put it on a scale. And this is where this is really important for the gospel. Habakkuk is living with a scale of righteousness. He's got a scale of 1 through 10. Now, we don't admit this, right? Not a single person here would admit we live like this. I wouldn't. I wouldn't tell you that I do this, unconsciously. 
but we do. So we have a scale of up to 10. Let's call it up to 10 points. And we look around and we, we're good enough reformed people where we don't put ourselves at a 10, right? But you're all sitting here on a Sunday morning. You're talking about having a fellowship this week and drawing people to church. So you're somewhere above an 8. Like, I'm, I'm up around an 8 or 9. I'm feeling pretty good about myself today. Now, you may wake up tomorrow morning and not feel so good about yourself and drop yourself down to a 6 or 7. But right now, you're in church and it feels good to be here. So you're up on the scale. The people that didn't show up for church this morning, they're somewhere around the five today. It's not how it's supposed to go. So you're kind of worried about them, but you think, well, maybe People that don't even go to church at all, they're below a five, somewhere around two or three, unless they're a really good kind of person that you've got to know. And so you move them up the scale. And then all the others are down around one. And God goes about our life to bust that scale. Because you can't live that way. you kill yourself that way. Constantly compare yourself to someone else. You'll constantly think you have to get one up. And you're living by the law and not by faith. So here's what God does to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's scale, the one to ten scale, gets blown up when the Chaldeans get introduced. Because look at chapter 13, look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent? Now look, he uses the same terms. When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Now who's the wicked in that verse? It's not the Hebrews. It's the Babylonians. All of a sudden, the rest of God's chosen people, the Hebrews, are righteous people. Habakkuk's scale in verse 4 has changed. Let's say it bumped up to a scale of 1 to 20 now, because he's got to get the, the bad Hebrews that he had down at 2 or 3 or 4, he's got to get them over 10. Because they got to be in the righteous category, because the Hebrews are all better than the Chaldeans. You can't do this, God. We are your faithful people. We can't die. So the scale has to shift. Have you ever experienced that? When you live your life on that basis, it is a black hole. It'll suck your soul dry. You will never gain enough righteousness to be at peace because righteousness does not come that way. You can pretend for a while but something will happen that will bust the scale. That's what the gospel does. The gospel breaks down that scale and is trying to push you off of measuring yourself up against other people and shifting that scale. That's about what we did. And that's why God gives him this vision. Because you can't live on that basis and have peace. So Habakkuk gets to the end of that complaint and God answers him in the passage that we read uh, at the beginning of the sermon. Write down this vision. The language of writing down the vision on tablets is language that you need to memorialize it. It needs to be written down so future generations can read it. And it's going to be a while before it comes in its full glory, God says in verse 3. And that full glory is the gospel when Paul grabs this verse in Romans 1, 16 and 17 and says, this is what Habakkuk meant. But God says, verse 4, 
Behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him. Who's that talking about? Everyone. Not just the Babylonians, but the Hebrews too. Our natural tendency is to have a puffed up soul that puts people on a scale and somehow attempts to get ahead on that scale. God says that's not righteousness. His soul's not upright. So how should you live? The righteous person shall live by faith. Those who trust God, Luther called it sola fide because he wanted to highlight that it was faith alone. Those who trust God have received the righteousness. And that's what broke open for Luther in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and then tracing that out all the way to Romans 4 and beyond, that when you trust God, you don't have to worry about that scale of righteousness anymore. You're not on that scale. You're on a different path, and it's the path where God gives you the righteousness of Jesus. We call it, we called it, Luther called it, imputation. Imputed righteousness. And when I was a teenager and read this, it's, it was one of those experiences, and I, I believe I was saved before then, but I didn't have a proper understanding of the depth of the gospel. And it dawned on me that what I have trusted is actually that when, when God forgave me, he took all my sins. As we see in the, in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, not in part, but the whole. And he nailed it to the cross. Not just the sins I've confessed, but the sins I don't remember and the sins I haven't confessed yet, they're all nailed to the cross. And in exchange for my sins, and this is why it's good news, God gave me the righteousness of Jesus. His perfect obedience. Every time he loved his Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's mine now. Because I've never done that way. And neither have you. And your only hope is that when God looks at you through the cross, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and your sins are gone. That's why it's good news. And that's why God gave this message to Habakkuk. Because Habakkuk needed a message like this so no matter what he faced, he could go through it trusting God. Because the marching of the Babylonians means that he's going to die possible. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on October 31st of 1517. It was several years before he ended up standing between, before the Holy Roman Emperor in 1521 when he made his famous statement that unless I'm convicted by scripture I can't do anything else so help me God here I stand. Luther could have lost his life at that point. He got so nervous the night before when they were trying to scare him to death with fire, fires around the castle and the darkness and all the imperial troops. He got scared to death that he was about to die. He wasn't going to say the truth. He wasn't going to handle what was happening. That he asked for one more night. And that one more night, he gained the confidence that even if he has to face death, God will see him through that because his righteousness comes from God. 
And that's the same thing that Habakkuk experienced. I'm sure that you know the final verse of Habakkuk, verses of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3. We'll close with this. Beautiful verses. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fell, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That verse 17 I've heard recited at weddings and all kinds of places. Beautiful poetic language. But pause for a moment and think about what it means. After we've looked at the book, right? What does it mean? If there's no fig tree blossoming, there's no fruit on the vines, the olive has failed, the fields yield no food, the flock is gone, and there's no herd. It means the Babylonians marched on the land and devastated everything. And there's no food. There's no dwelling. There's nothing left. If your faith had to go through that, where does your faith go? What do you do if you go through that kind of catastrophic suffering? Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. That's the kind of faith that the gospel produces. A faith that in the face of destruction and death can say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I pray that you receive the gospel that way and believe it so that no matter what you face in the rest of your life, you can rejoice in the Lord knowing that you are his child and you need not that's good news. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for the message of Habakkuk and Paul and Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and what it means for us as we've understood the gospel. And we pray, Father, that you will take the words that we've seen from the book of Habakkuk and the Apostle Paul and apply them to our heart so that we have confidence in the gospel. That we need not fear, but we can grow in our faith and trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. People, God, please rise as we sing the only verses 1 and 2 of hymn 142. Sacred head, delegate.
thank you so much, Pastor, for that sermon. It's always good to know that there are many men that are willing to preach an unadulterated gospel. There are a lot of preachers that as soon as they get to that point, they a certain failure of nerve, and they're just not willing to say by grace alone through faith alone. you got to have a little something in there, right? you got to keep the gospel. The gospel's not pure. All this stuff kind of falls apart, doesn't it? Well, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and of course this is a supper for the people of God. It is a supper of the visible church, where through these mere signs of bread and wine, we represent invisible realities. So as we take mere bread and we eat it, there's a relationship between the sign and the thing signified. And the thing signified by the bread is Christ's body broken for you, his life, death, and resurrection, the benefits thereof. And also of the wine, it represents the blood of Christ shed for you and all the benefits thereof. So even though we're only eating physical things, they do represent the spiritual blessing of God that he gives us. Amen? Amen. Amen. At this time, Lord God, we pray that you would set aside these elements from a common to a sacred use. We thank you, Lord God, for all of the blessings thereof in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
people of God, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Lord our God and Father, likewise, we pray that you would take these elements and set them apart from a common to a sacred use. In Jesus' name, amen.
the same way he also took the cup. And after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take and drink. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord our God and Father, we thank you for this time of coming together in your name, that you have invited us to your meal. It's a mirror of events going on in heaven, and that we receive spiritually the benefits of Christ in this way is just marvelous to us. We don't claim to understand it, but we receive it by faith. And we thank you for this, Lord God. Amen. Please rise as we sing the last verse of O Sacred Head. And it's still number 1,142 in your hymn Jerry's jacket, but he was wearing it this morning. So. <laughs> also, we have some food on the other side. Please come and meet other people and hang out a little bit and ask somebody's name. Get to know folks. Uh, the other thing is, yes, on Thursday night we're having a huge party here. Do feel free to invite neighbors. I really believe in threshold experiences where the first time somebody actually enters the church, it breaks a certain boundary. It doesn't mean they're going to start attending here, but we will definitely make a friend, right? So feel free to invite anybody, especially people with small kids that like candy, if you can find one of those. <laughs> uh, was there anything else? Bring more candy. Uh, next week, we are all going to be taking the Deacon's uh, Fund uh, offering. And I really want to thank our uh, missionary from Berlin, uh, Jeff Allers. Allers? Allers. Allers. And also Pastor James Grant and his lovely family that are here. Make sure to meet them before they go. Uh, people of God, look up and receive his blessing, because this is only a representational thing where I'm telling you something that God has promised you, that if you have laid your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you receive the blessing of God. May the Lord our God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you, and may he give you peace. Amen. Amen. Amen.